coming up. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. Ancient wisdom for modern times. Can the Greek virtues of citizenship save us from looming ecological disaster? The problem is hubris and greed and heedlessness and stupidity, which are exactly the inverse of Plato's virtues. Those are the Greek vices. Our guest is Melissa Lane, author of Eco Republic, What the Ancients Can Teach Us About Ethics, Virtue, and Sustainable Living. The Greeks weren't thinking about ecological sustainability, of course, but they were thinking about social and psychological stability. And so my message is, that kind of stability has to be at the heart of what we mean by sustainability. Recorded live as part of the Stanford Continuing Studies series, The Art of Living. Ancient wisdom for modern times. Dust. Win. Dude. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Stanford University campus. This program is part of the Stanford Continuing Study Series, The Art of Living. Our thinking originates on the other side of the quad at Philosopher's Corner. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Today, ancient wisdom for modern times. Specifically, the wisdom of the ancient Greeks, in particular, Plato and Aristotle. Now, there are other wise and ancient philosophers like Confucius, but today our focus is on the Greeks. Now, you might wonder why. Most Greeks thought the earth was flat, slavery was okay, and women were second-class people. Plato rose above some of that, but he thought that democracy sucked, poetry and drama were bad things, and that freedom of speech was a joke. He even thought that philosophers, of all people, should be kings. So, Ken, where's the wisdom in all that? Well, uh, no doubt about it, John. The Greeks got lots of things wrong, but they also got a lot right. And we moderns would do well to appreciate and adopt some of their wisdom, especially their wisdom about their ethical wisdom. I don't suppose you mean about slavery and women. No, no, I mean their wisdom about virtue and vice. The, the Greeks had a very profound understanding, very profound, of the nature of human virtue and, and of human vice. Somewhere along the line, modern philosophy sort of lost track of that understanding. Well, that's because modern ethical theory followed in the footsteps of Kant, Bentham, and Mill. They're more focused on the right than on the good. The right versus the good. Now, that's a good distinction, but I think you need to explain that distinction. Well, when the Greeks thought about ethics, what they had in mind was the nature of a good or a well-lived human life. Their topic was the good. Their basic ethical question, what does it take for a human being to live well and thrive? And, and modern philosophers? Well, their basic ethical question is, what are the moral rules that govern our interactions with others? The Greeks were far less concerned with rules than the moderns. They were more concerned with the cultivation of virtues like courage, honor, moderation, and the like. And, you know, with our focus on rules, we've lost something that the Greeks understood and I actually think, John, that a lot of our problems 
are due to an excess of vice and a shortage of virtue. Well, you know, maybe, could be, but let's give modernism its due. Mill, for example, had the great idea that we should all be free to do whatever we want as long as we don't hurt others. That's plausible. Mandeville pointed out that greed may be a private vice, but it's a public virtue. Greedy people do big things. They create jobs. Then they die and give their money to found universities. <laughs> you, can, you can add to your pantheon uh, Adam Smith, John. He, he thought that if we each pursue our own desires, the market's invisible hand will ensure the best result for all. It, it sounds like you agree with this. You sound like Gordon Gecko. Greed is good. Is that what you think? Well, I haven't swallowed the whole glass of Kool-Aid, but let's admit it, the system has worked well for the United States. Lots of freedom, not a lot of virtue, lots of greed, lots of wealth. Maybe Plato and Aristotle were wrong and Gordon Gecko had it right. I, I just don't know. I, I look at our situation differently. Look, if you bungee jump off a cliff and you don't realize that your cord is torn, you're going to feel quite exhilarated. You think you're well off. But you're not. You're cruising for a serious bruising, dude. That, that's the position modern society is in. Well, Mr. Smiley Face, why don't you tell me a little more? C consumerism and greed, what the Greeks would think of as appetites run wild, appetites run amok. They've led us into a series of financial debacles and have propelled us into a huge ecological crisis. And only our willful ignorance about the future, what the Greeks would call hubris, can make us feel good about the situation of modernity. So kind of what you're telling me is if we just take on the ancient Greek virtues of moderation and civic-mindedness, we might actually be able to ameliorate our ecological disaster? You, you, you sound skeptical, but, but I know you. I know that in your moderate and civic-minded heart of hearts, some little part of you agrees with me. Come on, admit it. Oh, well, deep down, I really wish it were true, and it, it might help a little, but there are some pretty basic problems. Our whole economy is based on consumers wanting a lot and greedy corporations getting rich satisfying those wants. If we don't keep stoking this fire, we have depression, poverty, no money left for things like research on solar energy. So, you, so you're, you're telling me that Private virtue and moderation might make for public disaster, is that it? Suppose everyone was like me, and they were happy having a 20-year-old car. Detroit would go broke. The whole system would break down. Consumerism makes our world go around. You couldn't have anything like America if our economy was fueled by the wants and needs of, say, virtuous monks and nuns. See, John, you know, I, I see your point. I, there are problems, but I'm not willing to give up just yet. And to help us see that it can be done, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to find some modern people applying ancient wisdom to their own lives. She files this report. On a recent Saturday, members of a philosophy club at UC Riverside packed their tents and sleeping bags and headed into the desert. There they joined dozens of amateur astronomers, tourists, and scientists for a star party. For hours, they stared at the same night sky that had puzzled ancient philosophers. It feels so small. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the most important thing is that it kind of reminds you just how uh, small and insignificant we really are. 
Seniors Joshua Bunce and Marcel Lebeau came out to Mojave National Preserve for some of the darkest skies in the country. Low in the horizon, you can see the glow of Las Vegas many miles away. You can see constellations, shooting stars, even the Milky Way. It's awesome, especially Saturn. Saturn's really cool. Wow. I mean, it just looks like something out of like an old science fiction movie. It's just this glowing, uh, white, bright white orb with a little ring around it, actually a big ring. The ancients believed the Earth was the center of a finite universe, but not Epicurus. He believed the universe is infinite and that we're all made up of atoms and that we have no immaterial souls. And that got senior Sarah Overholz thinking about the relationship between science and philosophy and the things we've learned since Epicurus's time. He had like a lot of arguments about how you could like to prove that the sun was the size that we saw it was. And of course now we know that's wrong. So um, it is interesting, it's just one of those points where you realize that as science progressed, a lot of philosophy has also changed. We realize that we're not the center of the universe, right? And, and sometimes science can kind of tell us otherwise, right? That because we have science, we can know everything, but we always have to remember that we're just, you know, small. We're small, we're human beings, and, you know, we, we have a very limited perspective on things, you know? These are exactly the kinds of questions Christopher Phillips found himself thinking about back in 1996. So he started a small group that met regularly at a coffee house in Montclair, New Jersey. He called it Socrates Cafe. They'd sit around questioning everything. No discussion was off limits. It can be a typical one from once Socrates investigated to like what is justice, you know, what is virtue, what is moderation, or it can be something like how does a kind, intelligent person gets stuck in a lousy job. Soon, Socrates' cafe took off. Phillips started hearing from folks in far-flung places. I started getting letters from people in prison, people in nursing homes, people in elementary school, junior high school, saying, we can't come there. It's too, you know, so can you come to where we are and show us how to do this ourselves? Now, there are upwards of 600 groups across the United States and abroad. The beauty of the group is that it brings the Socratic method to life. When Phillips discusses Socrates, it's like he's talking about a lost friend or a mentor he deeply respects. He helped people bring out ideas that they didn't even know that they harbored within them. I mean, that is genius. You know, you have a certain idea of what you think when you're left to your own devices. It's when you engage in a certain methodical inquiry with other people that um, inspires inspires them to, and it's an unsettling and exhilarating sort of discovery, to tease out ideas that they didn't even know they had. Philip sees this kind of inquiry as vital to our modern lives. At a time when proselytizing and partisanship seem to have reached new heights, Phillips believes we should be surrounding ourselves with people who challenge us. I do not believe you can have a vibrant democracy if we don't have that operating premise that I could be wrong. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. I'm John Perry, along with my fellow philosopher at Stanford, Ken Taylor, and we're coming to you from the Stanford campus, part of the Continuing Studies series, The Art of Living. Our guest today is a professor of politics from Princeton University. She's author of Eco-Republic, What the Ancients Can Teach Us About Ethics, Virtue, and Sustainable Living. Please join us in welcoming Melissa Lane. <laughs> Melissa, Plato and Aristotle are very ancient philosophers. I mean, they're dead. <laughs> They've been dead a long time. The ecological crisis 
is right now. It's upon us. How do these two temporally such distant topics get joined in your mind and in your wonderful book that Ken will hold up? (laughs) Thank you. It was actually started in a kind of uncanny experience. On the one hand, I started to hear people talk about the financial crisis, the ecological crisis, using these words that were Greek words. So they said the problem is hubris and greed and heedlessness and stupidity, which are exactly the inverse of Plato's virtues. Those are the Greek vices. And so then I started to to wonder, well, maybe some of the Greek solutions could actually be relevant. And I started to hear people, business leaders, policymakers talking, starting to talk about this too. So starting to think, maybe if we think about doing the right thing as the smart thing to do, not just what we should do, and maybe thinking about it in the big picture um, of what's really good, maybe that could be the right path. Now, there's a tradition of philosophers having the ear of great leaders. Aristotle was the teacher of Alexander the Great. Now you, Melissa, have taught Princes William and Harry and been a close advisor to the president of Costa Rica. So what piece of ancient philosophical wisdom did you share with these rulers? Actually, it was challenging because I think the deepest political insight is Plato's idea that the people you want as rulers have to be reluctant. But that's kind of a hard thing to say to an elected politician (laughs) or princes who are born to the royal purple. But I think the idea underlying that, and I think actually all these people that I had the privilege of working with um, understood this, is that the point of rulers isn't to benefit themselves, it's to benefit those that they rule. Um, It has to be, and that's what it really means to be reluctant. You're reluctant because you're not in it for yourself, You're, you're in it to serve others. You're not in it for the sheer joy of the power, for the sheer, I did that, for the sheer ego stroke? If you are, you, you're, you're setting up yourself and others for a fall. But we admire people who are ambitious. We admire people who strive, who want more. Even if they don't want more for somebody else, we admire people who want more. Are we want wrong by the Greek lights to admire people who want more? Well, it depends what you mean by want more. So if what you want is more stuff, more 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 goods, more objects. More that's fame, what they, more well, wealth. Okay, so that's what they call pleonexia. That's wanting to have more, and that's a political danger. But they were, the Greek society was very competitive, and people were seeking fame and admiration. But even then, if we look at, remember the Roman example of every emperor who, or general who had a triumph, he had to have a slave wandering behind him to say, remember, you are mortal. <laughs> Well, you know, in philosophy departments and other other departments, there's often said, well, we have a power struggle every few years, and the loser gets to be chairman. Um, And I lost that for six years in a row. (laughs) And see what a good ruler you were. (laughs) And if we had someone in our department that that showed the ambition of of Hillary Clinton or or Obama or or John McCain to be chairman, we'd be very suspicious of them. Of them, but we, we we do seem to accept that in our in our leaders. Well, I think this is where I think, as, as I said, it you know when you think about this with elected politicians, obviously in an elected system, people have to put themselves forward. So in that sense, mm-hmm. they have to have some of that ambition. But I think if they don't have also a kind of inner self awareness and self restraint and knowledge of why they want to do it and what they want to do with it, that's you know otherwise then that can be really dangerous. This is philosophy talk coming to you from the Stanford campus, where we're looking at ancient wisdom for modern times. Our guest is Melissa Lane from Princeton University. 
In the next segment, we're going to consider ancient Greek insights and how they might help us with modern problems. Greeks, greed, and a world in need, along with questions from our audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Welcome back to Philosophy Talk. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Melissa Lane from Princeton University. We're talking about ancient wisdom for modern times. What does the world need? More consumers? More greed? More taxes? More humility? Give us your opinion. Join the discussion by stepping up to one of the microphones at either side of the stage. So, Melissa, as John was saying in the, in the opening, modern economics is arguably, arguably based on, well, you might call it a simple-minded picture of human psychology. People are rational maximizers of wants and desires. They have these desires. They want to satisfy these desires. They want to satisfy them to the highest degree. Reading your book, you think the Greeks had a more subtle, richer, more adequate picture of the human mind. How, how do you think their insights might be helpful to us in the modern era? So modern psychology and economics tend to take desires as given. We start with the desires and then we figure out how to satisfy them. And I think what all the Greek philosophers did was to say, you know, are those desires really going to be good for you? Are they really going to satisfy you? So let's even take the most extreme case. So Epicurus, who said that the point of life is to pursue pleasure. That sounds like he might fit right into that modern economic framework. But actually, he ended up saying, well, wait, if you really think about it, if you're pursuing constant new um, things to drink or eat or, or whatever, that's actually going to make you feel insecure. You might not get what you thought you wanted. You might, it might run out. Somebody else might get more than you. You're not actually going to find that pleasurable. So, so, so mm -hmm. I, I call this modern picture of desires simple. I, I'm not quite sure it's so simple. But there is a strand in sort of modern thinking. John's favorite philosopher, Hume, says, reason is and ought to be nothing but the slave to the passions. So what's the role of reason? Calculate how to get the things you want. That's the sole role of reason. Can't tell you what to want, except as a means to some other end, but it, it can't. There are some philosophers who disagree with that. But, I mean, the Greeks did not think of desire that way and reason that way. Did reason have some power to tell you what it's right to desire or something like that? How's that supposed to work? Yeah, well, again, it's interesting to start with Epicurus, even though I mainly work on Plato, but I think Epicurus is an interesting case here because he thinks... Well, actually, even if you thought that reason was the slave of the desire, so it's trying to tell you how to get what you want, even then, if you really think about it, you're going to realize that what it's best, what you actually want, what you're going to enjoy having. So he wanted to say what, what you enjoy having, that's what's good for you. But even that is going to be really radically different from what you might have thought left to your own devices or just modeling yourself on the behavior of others. Um, and then, certainly, Plato and Aristotle beefed that up, or they had already beefed that up before Epicurus came along. And they wanted to suggest, well, you have to really ask the question, what's good? You know, what's actually going to constitute the good life? And reason for them could be a guide to, to tell you that. I mean, it, it seems to me that we, I, we have some basic needs and probably pretty basic desires. But most of our desires kind of are up for grabs. I mean, what's going to really motivate us? And we see the government now, our government, the California state government and the U.S. government, uh, really trying to influence people's desires. One is the anti-smoking ads. Those are pretty effective, mm -hmm. uh, and they really uh, uh, 
decrease my interest in smoking. Hmm. Uh, and th then the other is the lottery, right? Hmm. The California produces these ads that say, hey, this is the greatest thing that'll ever happen to you. You'll become a super trillionaire. Although the empirical evidence is these people all come unhappy. So we've got those two. Should the government really play a big role in trying to tell people what to desire, kind of counterbalance corporations in that way? And how could we do that in a way that left out the lottery but did more like the smoking? Yeah, so I, I have two answers to this question. So, you know, one answer is the sort of idea of nudge. So you try to nudge people in the right direction without necessarily forcing them. That's been developed by um, the economist Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. But the other answer is, even if we go back to Mill, who you mentioned in the opening of the program, who says the harm principle, you only stop people from doing what's harmful to them. But then we have to say, what's harm? You know, we, we have this kind of pre-theoretical sense. We think of, we know what harm is. So we think, oh, well, it, you know, I'm allowed to, to um, not insulate my attic and thereby use much more energy than I need to. Well, maybe that's actually harming people, and we just haven't figured out yet that that should come into that net. So I actually think that even according to impeccable liberal principles, once we start thinking more seriously about what's good, what's harm, we're going to find the state drawing lines in a different but, place. But see, here's the thing. I mean, here's the big turn in modernity away from... Well, there are many big turns in modernity away from the wisdom of the ancients, right? For one thing, I'm an autonomous, self-governing being. What does that mean? I choose my life, right? I choose my life. I choose what, what to pursue, what, all that. I do that without interference from anybody else. The state is not really there to tell me what the good life is. That's not the business of the state. The state is there in a way to keep John from interfering with me and me from interfering with John because without the state we might... <laughs> But the main job of the state is to referee our disputes and stay out of the way and let us each do our thing. Well, again, I think actually when we think about it, we realize that the state always has to be doing some relatively thin, you know, somewhere in the middle between thin and thick job of deciding what the good life is. But because it's been doing it in a certain way for so long, that becomes invisible to us. You know? well, what so, do you mean by that? Well, so, so, for example, you know, why do we think national security is a good thing? Why do we think that... Um, not uh, being subject to terrorism is a good thing. I mean, those things, we have to make the judgments that those things are good things. So the state is pursuing good things. And my point about sustainability is that we have to realize that unless we are doing things in a way that we can go on sustaining values over time, then actually we won't be doing our job. So sustainability is a, a sort of side constraint on the way that we're already operating in politics. So if, mm -hmm. if I was king of the world for day, and I wanted to solve the ecological crisis, I would kind of be torn between two roots. One is the libertarian route, but real libertarian, not this faux libertarianism we have. Real libertarianism, you pay the costs of what you do. And so we would have a mammoth carbon tax, mm -hmm. right? That's mm -hmm. what a true libertarian would be for, and that mm -hmm. would make a tremendous mm -hmm. difference. The other view is kind of, no, we, we need a basic change in human soul. We need a religious conversion. We need to worship the earth. There needs to be a movement that sweeps across the earth like Islam and Christianity and Buddhism did at various times. So people just change what they want. Which way would you go? Which <laughs> so, way would the Greeks have us go? So I actually think we need to do both. Oh. So no, I know, but, but no. You're not in the ambitious sense, no, no. or anything. But, but no, but in the sense that, you know, carbon tax, absolutely we need it. But guess what? Taxes have loopholes, they have delays, they have appeals. They have enforcement problems. 
Actually, any kind of regulation that's ever been passed, you need people with decent wisdom and competency to enforce it. That's what Senator Dodd said right after passing Dodd-Frank. He said, we can pass these, this legislation, but we can't legislate good people to enforce it. So you need enforcement and you need the right attitude so that people obey the law rather than trying to evade it. But, I, but mm -hmm. reading your book, I get the, the, I mean, there are particular policies that may help us to be more sustainable, but it seemed to me that your fundamental thoughts is that we need to reimagine what we are as individuals, how we relate to the state, how we relate to one another. You seem to think we need a fundamental reimagining of our, our lives together. Is that right? Yeah, that is right, because that's the deeper side of this, is that, well, actually part of having a sustainable society is having a society where people's motivations and the social world they produce are in a stable, harmonious relationship. So it, that's why Greeks weren't thinking about ecological sustainability, of course, but they were thinking about social and psychological stability. And so my message is that kind of stability has to be at the heart of what we mean by sustainability. It's not all we mean, but it has to be part of what You're we mean. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Mm -hmm. We're talking about ancient wisdom for modern times with Melissa Lane in front of a live audience at Stanford University. We've got a, a questioner from that live audience. Well, welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Kumar from Menlo Park. Uh, I come from India, and as I grew up, the virtue that was taught and ingrained in us was to live within your means, live with what you have. The less you live with, the better you are. Uh, Gita taught that, the ancient wisdom teaches that, mm. uh, Mahatma Gandhi actually lived like that, and we, as we grew up, we saw that as, as an example. Mm. And unfortunately, in retrospect, the country followed him and stayed within, within its means, never progressed anywhere, paid attention to uh, cottage industry and small village things, and we went nowhere. As I grew up, I saw people who were coming here as we became doctors, and we saw that greed, this kind of economy is what gives you pleasure and happiness. Obviously, I moved here, and I've been the happiest person for the last 35, 40 years. So it seems like greed may be a vice in your list of vices, but it seems to be a virtue from every way I can look at when I compare the two economies. And I want to just pile on for you a little bit, because I want to give you this challenge. This is the great insight of capitalism, and capitalism, the huge watershed event in the history of humanity has produced so much more material well-being and prosperity around the world than anything that came before it. And moreover, we don't know, we don't know how to run an economy that, it, that doesn't have constant growth, that doesn't have more and more desires being satisfied. So what do you want to do? Go back to the ancient Greek uh, standard of living? So this is a great question, and thank you for raising that. It's a deep challenge. So I absolutely agree that capitalism has raised people out of poverty. It's produced tremendous technological advantages that I, like all of us in this audience, benefit from hugely medical care, all those things. I don't think anyone can deny that, but it's also now producing financial crises, unemployment, ecological crises. I think it's starting to hit a certain kind of wall where the idea that the unintended consequences will always be positive. We're starting to realize a lot of the unintended consequences of capitalism are not positive. And so what I say is that we need the ancient virtues to re-enlighten capitalism. It's not that we want to get a, to destroy capitalism, not at all, but what we need to do is to think, well, 
why is it also producing these harms and how can we prevent the production of those You have harms? a follow-up question. Sir. I would any time have these mm -hmm. crises than the crisis India faced when we were poor. Any time. These are much better crises to have than the crisis of not having enough food, starving at night, kids dying of uh, lack of medical care and everything else that a poor nation faces. Any country in Africa would be glad to have your crisis. Any no, wait a minute, though, sir. Wait a, wait a minute. If we took it one by one, say, yeah, I'd rather have this crisis. But here's what's happening. I think you'll yeah. agree with me. Uh, our individual actions and our national actions, we're destroying our ecosystem. I mean, there was just a report, in the, uh, they've measured the amount of carbon. They've done some decisive measurement of the amount of carbon in the atmosphere now. There is more carbon in the atmosphere now than at any time in the last three, three million years. That includes the whole history of the human species, right? And they are utterly alarmed because it may be that we're past the tipping point. So we've got this huge problem that yeah. ca capitalism has produced. That's right. What we know how to do is a capitalism that raises people out of poverty, and that's an incredibly important thing. I would never deny that. I think everything you say about that is right. But what we don't yet know how to do is a capitalism that doesn't also destroy the planet. And the problem with that is that the ecology of growing tea in Kenya, of growing chocolate in Ghana that these countries depend on, countries where poor people are dependent on those crops, that's being threatened. The livelihoods of the poor is now being threatened by the byproduct of that capitalism. Well, just, let me just say, capitalism has been reinvented a couple of times. When Adam Smith wrote, there weren't large corporations. A generation or two or uh, later, there were corporations, but they were corporations that were entities created by the state that had a, the, the unbridled multinational corporations, that's a further invention. It's not clear it's a good one, not clear that it's really related to the essence of capitalism or the good things that it's brought. So reinventing capitalism without getting rid of its good parts, if it's not too late, isn't a crazy idea. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, ma'am. Hello, my name is Joanne. I am a physician. I live in Mountain View, California. I appreciate the comment you just made, John, but it, it, all aside, I think the biggest problem for our planet is that there are simply too many people, and we can't support any more people, whether it's government, lack of government, socialism, capitalism. We have to go back, I think, to limiting the exponential growth of the population as the first, first solution. I think, I, you know, my two cents, you're absolutely right. There's all kinds of growth, including growth in population, that we're really addicted to. And we've got to do something about it. And economists should give us models for prosperity where we have fewer people each year. If there and were, where people work fewer hours. If that was just free for the thinking up, it would have already been thought up. So, but I want to ask you, okay, we're talking about the problem that capitalism and, the, and modernity, capitalism is very deep in modernity. I assume your Greek wise guys looking at the modern world would say, hey, dudes, I got a prescription for you. What, what is that prescription? Mm -hmm. So what the Greeks would tell us is, look, not all kinds of growth are good. And an example was just given of that. Um, there are kinds of growth that are dangerous and unhealthy. There are cancerous growth, tumorous growth. And so we actually need to think about what are the kinds of growth that is intelligent and positive, and how do we have that within the moderate limits that makes it actually sustainable for ourselves and for others? That sounds like a very Greekish thought. 
I mean, because it's like the well, Greek virtue is the well-functioning of the human soul. And you're talking about the well-functioning of the human collectivities. We should think of human collectivities as having like a telos, a purpose, and doing that well. And it's not just refereeing disputes. It's something more than that. But see, I want to say, I don't think we have to go all the way with we all have to agree on exactly every detail of the good life in order to get this started. I think all we have to agree on is whatever we value, we want to value it continuing into the future. And if what we're doing is actually undermining the conditions, the ecological conditions that it's going to allow it to continue into the future, then that's actually damaging. And so that seems to me a kind of a more interim definition of sustainability that we could agree about without having to get whole hog agreement on every single thing that we value. Welcome to Philosophy Talks, sir. Hi, this is uh, Nate from San Francisco. Uh, the primary contemporary revolutionary movement against capitalism seems to be the Occupy movement. Do you see this as a solution in protest against the vices of capitalism? Um, so it seemed to me that the Occupy movement raised some incredibly important challenges and really succeeded in putting them into public discourse about wealth inequality and the, the lack of control that many people experience. Um, the, the place where I think it, it isn't the full solution is that it didn't connect clearly in, in, as much as it could do to changing um, everyday politics. So I think there's, this, there's always been this tension in politics between do you try to perfect the world, the small community that you're in, or do you try to change the sort of existing conventional means of politics? And again, I think that it's important to do both, and it's, it's that second one that you know, I think still needs more work. I was saying that Occupy movement does one thing, which is it expresses the idea that if you go back to the 50s, you have a great book by John Kenneth Galbraith, whose point was capitalism is working for everyone. It may not be fair, but it's working for everyone. Rising tide raises doubles. And that's no longer true. And that's, I think, the main message Occupying was saying. You know, capitalism isn't working for a lot of us. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're out to discover some ancient wisdom for modern times with Melissa Lane from Princeton University, author of Eco-Republic, What the Ancients Can Teach Us About Ethics, Virtue, and Sustainable Living. In our next segment, we're going to focus in on this question we've been toying with in a world largely controlled by multinational corporations and governments mainly focused on staying in power, can individual virtues, the cultivation of individual virtues, really be a major step in dealing with global warming? We're coming to you from the Stanford campus, part of the continuing study series, The Art of Living. We'll take more questions from our audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Welcome back. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Our guest is Melissa Lane from Princeton University. We're thinking about ancient wisdom for modern times. We've got a question from our audience. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Yes, my name is Valeri, San Francisco. In discussing this uh, constellation of virtues, uh, as the ancients defined them, do they all have to be active simultaneously to be effective? Is there a hierarchy among these virtues? Eudaimonia example, is that the, is that the Jupiter, the solar system of, 
of our virtues? Thank you, it's a great question. So let me focus on Plato, because um, it's a little different for each Greek philosopher. So for Plato, eudaimonia is the goal, and the virtues help us to get to that goal. And actually, Plato and Socrates argued that all the virtues fit together to the extent that you couldn't really have one without having all of them. So for example, how could you really be courageous if you don't know what you should fear? And how can you really be moderate if you don't know how much is enough to have? So in that sense, one could say that knowledge is at the core of all of them in terms of telling you what you need to do. But I actually think there's a sense in which psychologically that moderation or temperance was actually the emotional core of the virtues. Because it's only if you have a, a sort of self-discipline, a sort of self-control, that you can even start to cultivate pursuing knowledge, pursuing learning, justice, anything else. You have to have some basic ability to control your own appetites. And so I think moderation is really at the heart. So, so do, you, do you, I mean, just to continue with it, I mean, don't you think this platonic view that all the virtues are kind of knowledge is crazy? No. <laughs> I think it's really smart. Oh, okay. um, I actually think really fundamentally that Plato is, is, is right when he says that virtue is fundamentally knowledge because ultimately if we don't know what we should be doing and what we should be aiming for, how could we possibly yeah, hope I, to be doing the right thing? But I could know. Mm -hmm. what I, but he, Well, not to get deep into Plato yeah. debate Why not? here. Well, because we're talking about <laughs> sustainability and all that, but Plato faced this problem with this theory of virtue. He thought, roughly, to know good is to do the good. Nobody ever does the non-good except out of ignorance. But unfortunately, I know lots of good things that I ought to do, and I judge that I ought to do them, really, really ought to do them, and I don't do them. But the that's weakness is, of will. But see, but and he had a real problem. Now, he had the theory about how to explain it, because that's when, you know, like in the Republic, that's when the appetitive part or something takes over and, you know. But we don't even need the appetitive part. I actually think what Plato would say is, well, do you really know it? I think he's, that there's actually a deep wisdom in the thought that to really know something, you don't really know it unless you're really moved to do it. And I think one of the problems we have with sustainability is we don't really know. We're, we kind of, we know and we don't know, you know. And if we really knew, we would actually be acting differently. So let's get back to the climate crisis. Um, ancient philosophy, does it have a special insight that pertains to sustainability and the ecological problem? Especially because the multinational corporations and a lot of the other factors, the huge population, these are not things that Greek philosophers contemplated. They didn't have to deal with them. They didn't have to think about them. They didn't probably even know how to imagine the problems we have. But they did have to think about the question of, you know, what should you do, what should you aim at, what kind of life you should choose. And that's still fundamentally the question that we have. And I think that the, the insight that we can draw on is their idea that you don't want to just aim at doing no harm. It's, of course, it's crucially important to do no harm. And we had some physicians in the audience, and they would be the first to say that. But you want to positively contribute to doing some good. You don't want to just get away with thinking, well, I'm in my socially defined role, and within that, I'm just going to make my widgets and I'm not going to worry about whether they're but harming no, the earth. No, wait, I, let me just finish yeah. this. So what actually you need to think is how can my role contribute to something better for a broader picture? And actually, this is crucial for corporations, for example. There are wonderful examples of business leaders like Ray C. Anderson of the carpet company Interface who adopted exactly this view. I, I think of him as someone who was platonic without knowing that he was because he took the view... 
actually he realized, I don't want to just be selling carpets and making money. I want to be not harming the earth and actually doing good for the earth. And he fundamentally retooled his business model in order to take account of that goal. But, but okay, mm -hmm. but I'm going to be just so slightly skeptical here. Because the solving the global warming, the ecological crisis is this huge, massive collective action problem. I'm one little guy and living my one little life. And I look out there and I see a world of people largely and nations, corporations, largely indifferent. I could turn down my lights. I could do, I could do all that. But well, I believe that's going to make much of a difference. I could have all my individual, if everybody else were to have individual virtue, fine. But just on my own, virtue is supposed to be its own reward. Just on my own, <laughs> it seems kind of pointless unless the world's going to go along with me. So this connects back to the Occupy question, because I think the answer is, I think we're, we absolutely need political change and fundamental structural changes, but how are we going to get them? We're only going to get them if enough people band together and put pressure on governments to achieve them. What's going to lead those individual people to band together and put pressure on governments? I think it's because they fundamentally realize that they care about doing the right thing, that they value that, that that becomes central to their identity and who they are. That's how, so it's not an either or. It's not either I care about virtue or we get political change. My individual virtue can be made if I can connect up with enough other people, if I can connect to political movements. It can be a path so, to that. So tell me if you think, I'm groping for a thought here. Rule-based morality you know, gives you moral rules. Do this. This is the morally right thing to do. Has a problem. Like, don't lie. Has a problem. If everybody else around, around you is lying and it tells you not to lie, it tells you to be something like a, a sucker or an ineffective saint or something like that, right? So that's the, that's the non-ideal circumstances. And rule-based morality has a problem with dealing with what, how can it guide you in non-ideal circumstances? Does this kind of virtue-based approach have a better, I mean, be virtuous no matter the circumstances? Yeah, kind of thing? exactly. I think it does because what it says is be virtuous because it's who you are, because it's going to be what makes you happy, but that actually is a more powerful and reliable motivator than because I say so, because some rule tells you to. Fundamentally, if people change their, what they care about, what they most fundamentally care about, they reflect on that and they decide, I want to be part of a, making a good change in the world and not just doing what I'm allowed to do by the current legal arrangements, actually that can lead to profound um, social change. I, I think that's a deep thought. I've, I've often had this. So in I'm not moved by the argument I gave you. I'm one little guy, blah, blah, blah. But in response to that kind of argument, I sometimes say, well, think about who you want to be, right? Think about the, what I like to call the expressive mm -hmm. role of your keeping your lights on, not having a large, even if you don't materially affect the world that much, you express to everybody else, hey, this is who I am. And you can invite them to be that way, too. And that, that itself has some there, significance. There, there's a website that you can join or take on as a friend called uh, Ayn Rand Took Social Security, <laughs> 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 which is mostly negative things about Ayn Rand. But I uh, want to make two points with that. First of all, uh, philosophers, thinkers, authors can make a difference, right? Ayn Rand made a difference. She helped create the conception we have now of a corporation's duties and, and of what it is to be a creative person. Made a terrible contribution, in my opinion, but it's there. You have the, you know, the head of the, or Greenspan saying, 
he was just amazed that his Ayn Rand libertarian ideas didn't work out. You have uh, uh, these main main contenders for the Republican nomination uh, or, or the vice presidential nominee uh, really dedicated to these ideas. Ideas put into the heads of really bright, creative, hardworking, ambitious undergraduates can make a heck of a difference. And the point about Social Security is, even if you yourself are still using incandescent light bulbs. Yeah, so I want to I I add on, to, and I want to recommend your book in this way. Because one of the things that impresses me about your book is the scope of thinking. I mean, you take this tour through ancient political theory and ancient moral theory and modern political theory and modern, moral, and modern economics, and you bring them all together, and you confront modernity with the thoughts of these ancients. And, you know, there aren't that many, especially since the Marxists have sort of withered away, there aren't that many powerful critiques of capital, systematic critiques of capitalism. And your book is this powerful systematic critique of capitalism rooted in thinking about uh, the ancient stuff. I, I, it used to be a time in the university, this is my deep lament, when we would expose students, we thought we had the obligation to expose every student to this kind of range of thought from ancient world to modernity. We've lost that, and I think it's just such a shame. You as students, what's that relevant to me? I mean, your book illustrates the relevance of deep engagement with the best that had been thought and continuing engagement. Don't you agree? <laughs> Why, yes. <laughs> so, so, but what you need But to... don't you agree that we ought to be, that we owe it, that we owe it as professors to the young, despite their protestations? You well, know? actually, actually, writing the book was, a tr was the product of a, tr of a tremendous journey for me personally in doing this, because actually it came out of an experience that I had of working with scientists and policymakers and business people and linguists and lawyers and people from all across the university who, this was when I was teaching at the University of Cambridge in the UK originally and now continuing at Princeton, and we were all asking together, how do we solve these big problems? How do we even define these big problems? How do we have a common language? And that I think I completely agree is not something that universities are doing enough and it is a challenge to reinvent uh, And education. the idea that we look back at the ancients and the change from ancient ways of being to modern ways of being, and rethink those, the idea that that's the solution, I bet you that would be foreign but, to many, many But people. let me point out to you, Melissa, now Plato apparently wrote lots of stuff we don't have, and the dialogues were his attempt to reach out and be popular. Mm. Aristotle wrote a lot of dialogues that we don't have, which were apparently pretty well written. So maybe your next step should be write a couple of 600-page novels like Ayn Rand did <laughs> that really are bestsellers and undergraduates find irresistible. <laughs> I'm going to work on that. Okay. Okay, so uh, you, our vast listening audience, you're going to give them one takeaway bit of ancient wisdom for modern, the modern world and our modern problems. What's your one takeaway bit of ancient wisdom? Reflect on what you think is actually good. Don't, don't take for granted that the goals and values that you've inherited or that you see around you are actually going to um, make you happy and make society um, survive healthily in the long run and think um, about what, what it might take in order for all of us together to do that. How do I go about thinking about what's actually good? Is that thinking about what I want? What is, what is it to think about what's actually good? Yeah, I think this is a hard question, of course. Um, you know, I think we have to tack back and forth between different examples that we see of lives that we've seen lived around us. 
We have to think about actually wider sources of value than just humanity. We have to think about the values that are inherent in nature as well. Although I think sustainability is enough of a challenge just for human survival that even if you don't want to think about nature, there's enough there for you there. Um, and you know, we might go back to actually the, um, the, uh, the roving reporter and the, the um, astronomy where we might think about you know, we're this tiny planet, th these people in this tiny moment in this tiny planet in the speck of the universe. What in the face of that gives us dignity and um, gives us hope? Our guest has been Melissa Lane from Princeton University. She's author of Eco Republic, What the Ancients Can Teach Us About Ethics, Virtue, and Sustainable Living. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ken. It was a pleasure. So, well, John, what are, you, what are you thinking now? Well, I still think that uh, Plato's theory of the virtues as somehow all amounting to knowledge is bizarre. And so I don't think that's going to help with the ecological crisis. Uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with this whole movement that's, you know, it's been rooted in Oxford and, and, and Cambridge too, I suppose, and uh, a lot from Princeton, people taking the ancient ideas and doing all sorts of interesting things with them. People like John Cooper uh, and Melissa and um, go on and on and on. Uh, and the learning involved in it and the breadth and it makes me feel very humble and insignificant. Uh, it makes me feel <laughs> humble, but it makes me realize again, I'm gonna say it again, we, you know, we've lost the habit of taking the ancients seriously because we think we're so more advanced. And there's lots of ways in which we're more advanced, but they had deep understanding of lots of things about human life that we should try and recover. On, on the other hand, if you look at Plato's life, Socrates' life, Aristotle's life, their city-states were pretty much of a mess. Well, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. But this conversation continues on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is, Cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter, and you can find out more by visiting our very active Facebook page. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Temeris. Special thanks to Liz Frith, Azeem Masudi, and Elise Sugarman. Thanks also to our philosopher of sound, Dan Brandon, our philosopher of words, Crystal Nickerson. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Our marketing director is Dave Millar. Carola Kreitmeyer is our performance consultant. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and from the members of KALW San Francisco, local public radio where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and completely reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.